Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for July has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, that's C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. My guest this week is Kevin Rothermel. He works in advertising, although he doesn't like advertising, but he loves his job. How's it going, Kevin? Hey, how's it going? Uh, this is the sound of my voice. <laughs> it certainly is. Uh, what what exactly would you say your day job is? Um, well, it's it's called a number of things. Generally, it's it's called account planning. Um, some people call it strategic planning, or uh, you know, sometimes it gets into digital strategy. But um, it's all about basically trying to understand and solve for for clients' business problems with, uh, with creativity. So, you know, a lot of times what that means is, um, you know, doing consumer research or really understanding kind of where the brands have, you know, where the brand has come from in the past and sort of what, what has made it successful or, um, you know, cultural insights, things that, um, that, uh, that can really inform how, how a brand can, um, act and resonate with people. If that makes, if that makes any sense. It does in kind of a buzzwordy kind of way. Um, yes. So, can you give me a concrete example? You you said early on that you uh you you dislike advertising and you prefer communication, like working on companies' communications. What give me an example of the kind of the difference between communication and advertising? Well, I think you know, when I say that I that I dislike advertising, I've I've always really hated commercials. Um and you know, I still think, you know, Probably ninety nine percent of them are just utter dreck, um, and I think most people out there would agree with that. And and I think what you see with a lot of advertising and as as brands try to go digital, um, they're sort of taking that same interruptive model into the digital space and and trying to to make things work um, and trying to almost impose their impose their messages on people. And I think you know really the the best advertising or the best marketing or the best messaging or communications, it tends to be the, the things where, um, you know, a brand does make something like, I don't want to use the word content, but it's, it's where a brand will do something interesting that people find interesting in its own, in its own right. So maybe it'll be useful. Maybe it'll be something sort of fun to watch. Um, and, uh, and, and, and take away something about the brand, uh, from that, if that makes any sense. So, yeah. You know, for instance, right now, um, I work. One of the brands that I work on right now is uh, Benjamin Moore, the paint company, and we actually Gizmodo just picked it up. We we made for their stain um, for their line of stains. We made the world's biggest yo-yo out of um, out of uh, reclaimed wood from from decks, and actually, so they built this yo-yo out in the desert and. Um, and slung it from a crane. And, um, so we got some video footage of that and we put together a little campaign out of that. Um, so it's, it's things like that, you know, obviously it's not earth shattering and it's not, um, it's not anything that people are going to lose their minds over, but it's, it's just something that's a little bit more, um, appealing or useful or interesting to, to people. That's not just, you know, beaming, uh, messages into their, their faces. In cases like that, is it, is getting picked up by large blogs, the goal? In cases like that, uh, it certainly helps because um, a lot of what we're doing, especially for for that brand, tends to be uh, smaller budgeted things. Um, and you know, I think there's there's sort of a, a 
a misperception of this idea of like things going, you know, viral, like everyone always says viral. Um, and I think, you know, in, in our experience, viral doesn't really exist. Um, anything that you see that is purported to have gone viral probably had some media money behind it. So, you know, driving traffic to it. And I think things like getting on, on Gizmodo is, is certainly going to drive traffic, um, and get it in front of people that we otherwise wouldn't have had, um, I guess the financial resources to, to, to reach. Yeah. Well, and I tell, I tell app developers that are just releasing their first app that they can do all the, you know, build the best website in the world, but if they don't get the press, if they don't get onto the blog circuit, they're, it's, it's as good as uh, just buried. Oh, yeah. And, and that's, <clears throat> we sort of call that, um, we sort of call that the, the field of dreams theorem, right? The if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of clients um, who haven't, you know, if they haven't really thought about it or if they don't have a lot of experience uh, creating things online, um, sort of expect that it's enough to just build something really great. You know, they, they don't often think about things like, well, you're going to have to drive people to it. And um, if you're thinking, you know, if you're building a, some sort of a tool um, that's going to have to last for longer than a month, you're going to have to support it over time and you're going to have to maintain it. And it's, you know, it's very similar, I think, to, to having, a, having a web page or building an app in that sense and that it's, it's a little bit of a, a commitment. Building a great product is on a very important step, but it's only the first step. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of sad almost that you can put so much time and effort into building something high quality and then without, you know, without the resources to make it known, it really is it's it becomes like a basement project. Oh yeah, totally. Um you know, and I think about that a lot because I I've, I've been looking I've been I've been reading a lot about different kind of, you know, journaling and and how people used to journal versus how they journal now and um and it is interesting to think about, you know, where 20 30 years ago if you wrote little essays or you had a little notebook where you made fun of whatever you observed in real life, like uh, no one no one would ever see that, right? No matter <laughs> right. no matter how good it was. Um and, you know, I think and we always had, you know, I used to play in bands, um, play the drums. And, um, you know, we always kind of figured that uh, the best band in the world is probably a band that no one was ever going to really hear. <laughs> um, because it's, it's the, the things that make, the things that make um, kind of, you know, a band or a, an app or whatever become culturally relevant. Like it, it has to get out there to the people. And, and there's a good bit of, a, a good bit of luck that's involved as well. But, um, but Yeah. Do you think there was ever uh, like truly viral marketing? Like, I mean, it the first viral videos, uh, like uh, Zay Frank's "How to Dance" one, like that that had no media behind it. It truly went viral. Uh, but I think that you're right in that that can't happen anymore. Right. The like the the atmosphere is too crowded, too noisy. Yeah. Yeah. For that uh, yeah, to genuinely and, happen. And I think, yes. And I think, you know, if you think about like what Twitter was in 2007, um, where it was like, you know, uh, 25 nerds, um, if, if there was a video that came out or that one of them sort of started passing around, it would get around pretty quickly now, right? But it's, but now it's, there's so much noise um, just, you know, in social networks, like we're, we're just drowning in links constantly. Um, you, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I just don't think that like you're literally when you're making content and putting it online, you're literally competing with everything that's ever been made. 
Right. Um, and, that's a, and that's a tall order to, to try to get attention um, in that space without some help. What I find the most frustrating right now in this kind of uh, online marketing world is the, the, the Facebook lie posts where they attempt to get a viral post that ultimately links back to a product, but they do it with blatant uh, like clickbaiting. Mm-hmm. And and the the stories will turn out not to be true, but it's okay because they made a ton of money on all the people that shared it, freaking right. out about whatever the headline was. And then it, it never really comes to the surface that this was all a scam, unless right. you go unless you go look it up on like what's that uh, website that tells you what's real? Snopes. Snopes. Yeah. Like unless you oh. go look it up, it's you share it and you forget about it, and it just it it makes its way through this pseudo viral passage. I find that frustrating. Yeah. I, you know, Facebook, I think overall is, is a lot of what's wrong with, um, with, with marketing online actually right now. Um, and you know, that's one example of it. Um, but I think, I think sort of what's happened with Facebook is it's, it's given brand people who otherwise don't really understand the internet or, or, have kind of the patience to build something that would be good enough um, for people to want to use. Um, it gives it gives them a really easy, lazy way to to tell their board that they're doing the internet in a <laughs> sense, right? Yeah. Um, and I think uh, so. Yeah. So Facebook sort of drives me nuts. But I think you know, to your point about those posts that try to trick people into into you know falling into an advertisement, I I see a lot of the things. A lot of what's going on in like advertising tech sort of falls into that into that vein of um, it's all it's all sort of taking the the old way of looking at the world, um, which is we're gonna we're gonna bludgeon people with messages and we're gonna trick people into um, into watching our whatever, um, and and it's sort of taking that old model and bringing it to the online space, which which doesn't work. Because you know people can can do whatever they want. There was an old, there was a guy, um, an ad guy out in San Francisco by the name of Howard Gossage back in the '60s, um, and he had a he had a really great quote. I think it was him, um, but it was basically that uh, people read what they want, and sometimes it's an ad. Um, and I think that it it speaks that, like it almost predicts how uh, marketing on the internet really needs to work. Um, and so, you know, you, you find a lot of these, and I think it's a lot, it may be a lot of tech people who are trying to get into, um, making some money by automating advertising in a sense. And, and so I think what, what you end up with is this, is this mindset of, um, rather than making good content that people are going to want to, uh, there's that word again, content, but rather than making good content that people are going to want to interact with or be interested enough to watch or whatever else, um, it's about sort of you know how do you trick the most people into seeing this, and um, how do you how do you how do you doctor the amount of social whatever um, that that people are or you know the participation of 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 people on these things, and so it's it's just this this totally wrong way to look at it because rather than rather than taking the time to make really good stuff. It comes down to we're going to trick people into looking at your really bad stuff, um, which which we all know isn't it's not as effective. E.g., um, Facebook suggested posts. Right. I will never. I will never have never and will never click on a suggested post. 
Right. But I feel like that's something that Facebook does right in the sense that Amazon's you might also like is hugely successful and drives a lot of money. Yeah. I think that that Facebook suggested posts are while insidious. I think they're probably pretty effective as far as advertising dollars go. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, I would I would think so. But it but it gets down to well what is what is effective, right? Is is it is it that you want to get, you know, because a couple of years back, um the big the big hot trend um was in 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 marketing managers and brand managers, you know, they wanted they wanted a million likes on Facebook. Um and they didn't have a good reason as to why. It just sort of sounded like a good like a good number. Like there was a club in Miami that they could get into if they had a million likes on Facebook. Um, and and you know that's just one example where you have all these sort of fake metrics that have that have come along with social media that don't really have any bearing on on business or on changing perception or on kind of longer term brand building um, um, things. So. So yeah, I think that it is probably effective and that it gets people's attention and, and gets them to look at whatever it is that you want them to look at. Um, but ultimately, what it all comes down to is what are you trying to achieve? Like, what's the goal? Why are you on Facebook in the first place? Um, right. And uh, that's that's where that gets tricky. And you know, I, I feel like I always feel like Facebook has a little bit of an agenda with everything like that. Oh, absolutely. Um, where, whereas Amazon seems a little bit more like you literally or like you legitimately like might you might like this other stuff where oh, they're, Facebook they're right like way too often. Right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it creeps me out a little bit. I think I think actually Tumblr has the way that there are the integrated posts that I've seen in my Tumblr dashboard. Um, it, it tends to work pretty well. Or yeah. I think it, they've done that really well. So how could Facebook with all its money? Uh, not be as good as Amazon is at figuring out. I suppose with Amazon, Facebook has to measure your likes. They have to analyze what you're posting about and then try to match it. With Amazon, you have a very clear cut. I spent money on this. Right. It's not, I didn't like it just because a friend posted it. I actually want to own this. And that makes it, I think, probably easier to make that correlation. Yeah. But, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I really feel like I, I just have an inherent distrust of anything that Facebook does, especially now, you know, given like the, you know, the psychological yeah. study that they did, yeah. <clears throat> that there's not, it's, they're not putting that in front of me simply because some people that I know liked it. Like there's, there's another, there's some agenda um, that's helping to inform what they're putting in front of me. Um, and so I just, I just don't trust it in the same sense that like, you know, when like growing up with the web in the 90s and, and that sort of thing, you sort of learned to never, ever, ever click on a banner post right. or a, a banner ad. Um, right. I, I've sort of carried that over to Facebook where I'm like really careful about what I click on there. I'm careful about even what I like, even when it's from a friend, because, I mean, Facebook is using that data and no other service makes me feel as uh, analyzed as Facebook. Even Google scanning my emails and all of these things that they use to target advertising. With Facebook, like I said, it feels insidious. It does. It It, does. It feels like like their entire reason for existing now is just to farm my data. Right. And that's probably true of everybody, but Facebook makes it very apparent. Yeah. I just just don't – 
I just don't trust them in the same way that I would even trust Google. You know, I use Gmail and, and I like a lot of Google services. Um, but I feel like there's just kind of this, this under, like, I don't even know if we know what, <laughs> what Facebook is trying to do with all this stuff. Um, I don't know if they know. Right. Um, but I feel like Mark Zuckerberg probably is um, less, less scrupulous than um, maybe some of the, the other. Is that slander if, if it's on a podcast? I don't, um, I don't think so. <laughs> it, you, you said what you think. You, yes. didn't, you didn't lie. Um, well, and I think that, like, I don't think Google knows what they want to do with the data they collect yet either. Right. Um, or I'm, I don't think they're sure. I'm sure, I'm sure they have some some grand schemes, but they're collecting insane amounts of data that I think will be profitable at some point. Mm-hmm. But right now, I think they're just I think they they understand that the way of the future is data, and yeah. the more data you collect, the more you control the conversation. Right. Well, so. and you know my my buddy. Uh, Russell Davies, actually, I just linked to to an article that he wrote in Campaign Magazine. Um, but he he wrote it was a really refreshing take on um, what he thinks Google is up to, and and you know his his thinking is that they are actively trying to get out of advertising. Um, the reason being is that engineers um, pretty much to the T hate advertising, uh, but that they sort of they they stumbled into. Uh, a way to make money that was far too lucrative to ignore. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think his point is that when, when they start getting into consumer products like Nest and the self-driving cars, that they're not doing that because they want to be able to, to um, how did he put it? Like they don't want your thermostat, you know, whispering advertising in your ears and, um, and, and that, you know, you could probably make some sort of weird advertising product with that. But really, you know, what they have there is something that they can make, and that they can sell for more money than it costs to make. So, so in his mind, I think where, where he sees it going is that they're collecting all this data. They're going to want to eventually get out of advertising. Whether or not that'll actually ever happen is one thing. But, um, but that they're going to be using this data to actually make better products to sell to people um, down the road. Which I think is, you know, I, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it that way. But I think it, it can make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think uh, I think predicting Google, like Google's next step, is probably a very uh, a very lucrative but very sketchy uh, job to to try to tackle right now. Well, you just you just probably need the right algorithm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I'm sure they're very complex algorithms. <laughs> right. Um, do you think like back to viral? Do you think there's a parallel in the music industry? I, I feel like there was a time when a band could, nay, had to be viral to be found. But now it's to a point where with the advent of digital music and the internet and the web that uh, the marketing machine has taken over in the same way that it has in advertising. Have you seen this? Um, I, think, I think that it's still... I don't know that the marketing machine has been able to totally take over. Um, I know that there's there's music that I've made that is on Spotify now, which I don't even know how that happened. But um, <laughs> but so I think that that there's still kind of this open market for bands to get out there. I think the biggest problem is that music has become background noise in a sense. 
where, you know, like when, you know, when we were kids, like I, I just remember the first thing I would do when I'd meet someone is, is flip through their CD wallet, you know, and, and look through all the cases and sort of see, you know, like, well, who is this person? Um, because it was, you were making very conscious decisions about what you were going to go and spend your, your 1699 on. Right. Um, and now you don't have to do that. And it's, and it's, there's not the same incentive to like sit down and really absorb an album the way that there was. Right. Um, and so I think that's, that's kind of one of the big problems with music. But I think if, if the right band gets out there and is heard by the right people, then I think that they can, they can still make it happen. Well, and, and to your point, there's a level of, of trust that, that is equivalent in, uh, in advertising. And when you look through someone's CD collection or, or even more trustworthy to me is a vinyl collection yeah, and, and you see what they have made those conscious investments in and you can decide if their opinion matters to you and suddenly anything that they recommend carries more weight. Agreed. And looking through someone's iTunes collection or Spotify playlist has, has, has nowhere near the same effect right? because they're just scattered collections. Right. They didn't require that investment. Right. And and there's going to be, you know, like the other day I was using, I was listening to a Spotify playlist while I was on the treadmill at the gym. And some of the songs that came on, I was sort of thinking like, oh, God, I hope this isn't going out on Facebook. Um, <laughs> because, you know, you don't, it, because it, that to me, like in the movie High Fidelity, when they talk about that, um, you know, what, what you like, um, you know, albums, TV shows, movies, that sort of thing, like yeah. that matters. Um I really, uh, I really, and it's probably just a, a leftover from that age, but I, but I really believe that, um, that that's true. I, I think it's true in, in any area of, uh, of, of purchasing. Like, I, I think not just music, but if you look at what someone owns in general. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I, I think that kind of trust, I think that's probably, and and you would probably say this if I didn't, but that's probably when you talk about communication and and advertising in the digital uh, realm, building that trust sounds like it's more important than building up those likes. Yeah, um, I, I think trust is is certainly an important thing. Uh, you know, a lot of times. Because I, I think what people, a lot of people don't think about, um, in, including some people um, that, that have MBAs, um, but what people don't think about with advertising is that usually it was developed to solve for a specific issue. So, um, for instance, uh, you know, and this is just an example I'm making up, but like if, if McDonald's, if they run a brand tracking study, which is a research study that's probably going to run every quarter or something like that, um, if they see that they're starting to lose a little bit of uh, a little bit of the fun, right? If their little fun score starts to go down, well, then they'll put Ronald, McDon- Ronald McDonald back in their spots, and then they'll see that fun score sort of go back up. There's all these little kind of metrics like that to to measure perception and and, and things like that. Um, and and a lot of times it's it's about playing a, a long game and and building perception and making it more likely that when it is time to go out and buy a car that um, that you're going to feel like, you know, for instance, I used to work on Cadillac and, um, you know, their big thing was that they had, they had become a brand of floaty boats for old people. Right. Um, and the definition, like it used to be that when you became successful in America, you went and got a Cadillac. Right. Well, the, the, 
the definition of success has changed, and obviously all the import luxury is, has changed. So they've, they've had to really make a concerted effort to um, become, and I hate to use this word, so please forgive me, um, but to, to make the brand sexier again. Because when, when you're talking about, this may be getting a little off on a tangent a little bit, but when you're talking about a luxury car, you know, features used to have a lot to do with what made it a luxury car. But now, you know what, you can get the same features on a Hyundai. Right. Um, so why are you going to pay $40,000 more for this sedan? Um, and, it's, and it's that emotion. It's, 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 not, it's not so much the rational, um, the rational argument because it's just not how people make decisions. My first job out of, uh, we'll say college, um, was working for a, a company that made sweaters. And they, for a long time, had, they had cornered the luxury sweater market. But then they became Oldsmobile. And, <laughs> uh, and you know, it was stuff your dad wore. It, it, it had no appeal to anyone under 50 anymore. Right. And that was my job, was to try to make it sexy again. Yep, and uh, it was it was an uphill battle. I I didn't keep that job, but uh, <laughs> but it, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I get exactly the Cadillac analogy. It it was uh, it's not easy to do. Like the whole this is not your father's old mobile campaign. Yeah, kind of failed. Well, it's, right, it's still my father's old mobile. Of course, well, my dad you, never drove an old. But but you've you've just told me that, that people consider this to be an old person's car, right? With your with your tagline, right. um, I, I, like I think Buick is is sort of doing a similar thing right now, where it's like we we used to suck, but now we're good. <laughs> um, it's and it's tough because it's because all of this is all it's not it's not these rational perceptions that we all have. It's 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 emotional and it's you know we're 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 social animals, so we pick up cues from from the people that we hang around with, what's, what's okay and what's not okay. Like when I worked on Cadillac, we, we used to talk about that, you know, if I pulled up to my friend's house in a new BMW, they'd, they'd be like, oh, okay, cool, you got a BMW. But if I pulled up in a Cadillac, I'd really have to explain it. Um, right, right. And, and so there is that, there's just, we are way more social than I think that, that we like to think that we are, especially in America. We all, we all think that we're, we're individuals and, and we're very rational in our decision-making and that sort of thing. But it's, it's couldn't be any further from the truth. Do people really think that? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, people will tell you, even after you, you know, you talk to them about, um, (laughs) even when you show them examples or talk about different studies that have been done that show that, you know, we make decisions emotionally first and then sort of post rationalize in like a split second. Um, People will still tell you that uh, that's not how they think, and that they are much more <laughs> rational than that, um, and that they're they're individuals. It's I mean it's you know the the American mythology is built on this idea that we're all we're all rugged individualists, and when you make a when you make a commercial that's some anthemic thing about you know ain't America great? There's gonna be <laughs> <laughs> there's gonna be a picture of a guy with a mohawk you know in it because yeah. we are we are individuals, um, and it's you know. Not not so true. All right. I'm going to do some advertising right now. Okay. Good, good, good luck. <laughs> Our first sponsor today is Shopify, a hosted e-commerce solution that allows you to set up and run your own online store in just minutes. You can pick a template. You can add your products, pick your payment processor, including PayPal, Stripe, and Authorize.net, and then just ship your stuff with just a few clicks. 
With Shopify, it's easy to sell online and there's no software to download, host, upgrade, or maintain. You can pick from over 100 professionally designed e-commerce templates, or you can create your own with full control over the HTML and the CSS. There are no bandwidth limits and no need to worry about scaling when your store becomes popular. And every Shopify store is level one PCI DSS compliant and totally secure. Shopify has just announced their Shopify point of sale or Shopify POS. It's an iPad application that lets you sell your Shopify store's products in a physical retail setting. It's quick and easy. You just browse your store's catalog, pick a customer's product, swipe their credit card, and then print their receipt or send it through email. You can automatically sync products and orders, and there's only one dashboard to manage all your retail and online stores. Get the Shopify POS hardware, which includes a credit card reader, cash drawer, iPad stand, and receipt printer, and if you order online, shipping is free. Visit shopify.com slash 5 by 5 and you'll get three months for free. So check them out today. All you need is something to sell. All right. So I actually, we were going to talk a little bit about GTD next, and right. and, and we still may, but I'm curious about this uh the 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 uh the idea of herd mentality and and punk rock yep uh you, you we people equate the mohawk and and the the gene vest and all of this with rugged individualism but they're really there's a uniform exactly to punk rock and every you know every subsect of punk rock has a different uniform slightly but there's definitely you when the, when individuality becomes the uniform it's still a uniform. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I, because I think, you know, if you think about what punk rock was or you think, I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up probably for the first time on your show, um, a fine movie called Clueless. Um, <laughs> we just talked about that on Overtired this week. Oh, did you? I yeah. I'm, I'm a little behind on Overtired. Um, that's hilarious. But, uh, you know, when she's when she's walking around and she's like, well, these are the stoners and these are the jocks and these are the so-and-sos. I mean, it's it's all it's all people who um, who are coming together and finding commonalities with each other. Right. Right. Whether it's whether or not it's punk, it's punk rock um, or whether or not it's, you know, uh, people that are into the sports ball or <laughs> or whatever else. It's all it's all it's all social groups. Right. Yeah. And uh, I found out. Thanks to Facebook, actually, that some of the people that I almost despised in high school because they weren't in my clique and they were, to me, the oppressors, we yeah, actually yeah. we had a lot in common. Like, I'd become friends with some of them and found out, like, the girl who had a locker next to me my junior year and who I thought was just one of those popular girls. Yeah. She, she loved the same music I did, and she didn't feel like she fit in any better than I felt like I fit in. <laughs> right. And finding that out, like looking back and, and seeing those like those clicks that were formed almost artificially in high school. Right. Based on based on uh, like what we chose to display, you know, like I wore the Mohawk because that's how I wanted people to relate to me. Yeah. And and so we built these clicks, but it's there are commonalities between all of us. I don't know. It's kind of it was just an interesting phenomenon to to kind of discover that <laughs> what we what we put out there isn't always really who we are. Right. Well, and I think that we all have this this kind of internal narrative that we're trying to tell ourselves about, 
to to try to tell us try to help us understand that you know why we're different than who and who we're sort of like and so it turns into um you know because if if you're going to the same high school chances are you have a lot in common with everyone that's that's there right. um and uh but we we kind of create and build up these walls about like why we're sort of you know either culturally superior or um or whatever else but yeah it's it's funny because you know a lot of the people that I that I'm still in touch with on Facebook aren't the people that I was really good friends with in high school but they were people that I sort of knew um on the periphery yeah. um and still sort of kept in contact for some reason um but but yeah that is it is funny to see uh how that happens yeah i'm actually i'm 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 close to very very few people that i was really tight with in high school and college <laughs> right there's actually something about I, I get this certain level of distaste talking to people that maybe maybe it's because they knew me before I knew myself. Uh huh. But yeah, I, I I almost consciously avoid my best friends. Right. I don't know why. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I think in my case anyway, like a a lot of my friends. So I went to high school in Virginia Beach, and um, I had a lot of really good friends there. Um, and a lot of really smart friends, and a lot of us, you know, we weren't we weren't great students. We were, you know, we were playing in bands and 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 having fun and and all that sort of thing. Um, but some of them have continued the same struggles <laughs> that they've I, had. I know what you then, mean. You know, yeah. and it's sort of like you're like, okay, uh, you know, that we're we're in our thirties now, buddy. It's time to kind of pick it up by your bootstraps and and you know, <laughs> like go get a job. Um, uh, but you know, but then I have I have other friends that I'm that I'm still really good friends with who just aren't really on Facebook that much, um, and uh, and have just gone about different a different way of of life um, in the sense of you know my my buddy uh, that I played in bands with um, down there is he's he's still down there and he's still playing in bands and and having a, a blast um, and. Uh, you know, so I've, I've run off and sat in cubicles, and that's just a little bit different. And I spend more time on Facebook and, and the Twitters than than he does. But um, you know, it's just it, it's really interesting as you as you grow up and you get older, and you sort of feel like I was thinking about this the other day, where there's there's sort of these um, these sort of iconic older people um, that are that are. Uh, you know, you see them the entire time you're growing up. There's always people that kind of fit specific, um, specific archetypes. And it's strange to sort of have, have observed that. But then now sort of you see, you see people that you knew when you were younger growing into those. Um, almost like, you know, what kind of like Merlin talks about, like, well, are you going to be that kind of person? Um, and so it's really sort of interesting to watch, especially kind of getting into the mid thirties where, where people are starting to kind of take on those archetypal um, arch- archetypal roles in society for for <laughs> for whatever reason. Yeah, well, and and what you said earlier about like the frustration when you see someone dealing with the same problems and doing the same things they've done their entire life. I don't think it's even so much about growing up and getting a job as it is solving your problems. And becoming what you meant to be. And to me, the most frustrating thing is to see people who aren't becoming what they wanted to be. I don't right. care if that means you got a high, high paying job. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you're working, maybe you're doing like, uh, like medical work in, in third world countries. It doesn't matter as long as you 
got somewhere. Right. Somewhere you wanted to go. Or as long as as long as you were enjoying life. Right. Right. And you've and you've set yourself up to do that and you're not just tripping over yourself constantly. I don't mind the occasional negative posts from people when things are bad. Yeah. But when a person is nothing but negative on social media, I I can't I can't take it. I don't follow them. Right. Right. And yeah. anyway. Anyway, <laughs> so so you 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 got you recently, I guess not recently, but over the the last few years perhaps, uh got into GTD. Yes. How how did that come about? So, um, you know, growing up, I was never a great um, student. Um, I was never, I was terribly unorganized. Um, I just never had, like, I even remember in, in elementary school when we were required to keep a binder with specific things in it that the teacher would give to us. I couldn't wrap my head around that and, and would always get <laughs> sort of, you know, the check minus um, <laughs> when it came to binder time. But um <laughs> So, so I was able to sort of, I think just through kind of knowing things, like I was the kind of kid, uh, you know, teenager where, you know, playing in rock bands at night, but playing video games and more or less just kind of laying out in front of the history channel all day, um, where, you know, I, I sort of soaked up enough to where I could get through, um, get through school just by, I guess, virtue of, of what I already knew or my intellect or, or whatever it might be, um, but then once I got out into uh, my career and started to move up a little bit within, you know, ad agencies, uh, it's, it gets totally bananas. And you're working across like six different clients and there's everything's always on fire all the time. Um, and you have, you know, kind of, I don't know, 25 different people who are sort of expecting things from you or who need things from you or who you need things from. And there just there came a point where my inability to stay organized just it got in the way um and so i remember i think it was i found i I was already using evernote and then i started to get curious about like how are people actually using this because it it can get sort of unwieldy and weird and and are there systems that people are using um and so i I initially i found uh, a guy by the name of michael hyatt um who had some who had some posts on Evernote and then continued to search um, until I I came across a guy by the name of um, Merlin Mann, um, who you may be familiar with. I'm familiar. Um, yeah, I came across a an episode of Mac Power Users that he was on, um, and and by this time I had actually I had bought Things Things dot app um, just based on like someone had tweeted about it and it seemed pretty good, but I had no idea like how it was supposed to work or anything like that. Um, so I came across Merlin. I, I guess it was one of the Mac Power users uh, workflow episodes. And at the time, I was sort of like, "Who would this show sounds like? This must be awful. Who would listen to this?" Um, and then, so I, I actually sat through and listened to it. Now I listen to it every <laughs> every week. And um, anyway, so you know, Merlin was like, they've he's always talked about OmniFocus, and um, he, he always hedges his involvement in the development of it and, and that sort of thing. But it really sort of um, opened my eyes to. Um, that that OmniFocus was this very powerful way to stay organized, but also that there was this underlying system um, based on this book that, you know, and I'd heard about it before, but uh, once I saw, like, it, with, with these apps that I had, that there was a system that could be worked within them, I went back and read the book, and, um, and it, it literally has, has changed my life um, without, 
without any any overstatement there. Um, so you know, I've 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 been able to, and and I've actually in the past couple of weeks I've gotten a little bit fiddly again, but it, but it's <laughs> it's it's been a huge huge help in a way that none of those other books that I've ever read have have been able to help. I enjoy fiddling way more than actually getting anything done. Oh dear God, yeah. Um, <laughs> And and there's nothing worse than when you know Gabe Weatherhead all of a sudden drops OmniFocus because he's going to start using task paper, <laughs> and then there's that bug. There's that bug in the back of your brain that's like, oh well, maybe I should start doing that. And then uh, <laughs> two weeks later, you're just kind of like, Wait, what am I doing? I've, <laughs> I've just wasted two weeks of my life yeah. on uh, on this stuff. But that's why so, I blog because I, I will. I I'll I'll spend hours working out new systems. And then decide not to use them, but I will blog them, and that makes yeah. me feel better about the time I spent on it. <laughs> right, right. And I've sort of had to come to terms with the fact that, um, you know, like Merlin doesn't really do it anymore. But you know, the guys like uh, Mike Vardy and um, Mike Schechter and the guys who sort of do the uh, the productivity thing as as their online platform or, or as their career, um, they're always going to be cycling through and reviewing different things and looking at different stuff and. And uh, and so I've sort of had to like really buckle down when I'm reading their blogs or you know reading um, um, you know just any any of those guys to just kind of like okay this may be interesting to read about but I have my system that's working pretty well now just stop <laughs> like um, they are not constantly fiddling and going from app to app to app to app or at least I don't think they are and so um, yeah it's 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 taken a lot of discipline um, to uh, to not follow suit. That's the thing about a lot of us who who do blog and do app reviews is, is we'll try anything, but yeah. I, I rarely actually change my day to day system. Right. But I'll try everything that's out there. Well, and so how do you? Because I remember um, trying to get you to talk a little bit about it on on Twitter a while back. So you use OmniFocus for your everyday stuff but then you use task paper for your individual projects like how does how does that sort of how does that work when i start a new project it's you know i'm in unix i'm on the command line i have a folder for that project with code in it and i type td and it takes the name of the either the git repository or the current directory and creates a like i'm working on one called written right now and uh, and so it creates written.taskpaper and it opens it up in taskpaper with predefined categories for bugs, new features. Um, uh, now I'm forgetting. Uh, inbox bugs, new features, and, and archive. And basically I have command line tools that let me, as I come up with a to-do or a bug, um, instead of leaving to-do comments all over in my code, I just, on the command line, I type NA, which is next action, and then minus A, which is add, and then I add whatever just came up. And those all go to the inbox, and then I sort them and prioritize them with priority tags. And and I don't use priority tags in OmniFocus, but I do yeah. in coding projects because it's important for me to know this is what, like, level five is, this has to be done before the next release. Right. Level one is, if I get around to it, it's a maybe. Um and and so that's like my my coding system and then yeah. everything else in my life you know like go pick up groceries that's going into omnifocus because there's way better sync when i'm out and about with mm -hmm. my iphone there's uh better overall like the the newer perspective and forecast views yeah um 
like I find that just way handier than trying to recreate that in task paper. Right. It's possible, but it takes it takes a lot of tweaking. It takes a whole lot of uh yeah. I mean like looking at, at the systems that Gabe has been has been putting together. I'm on a first name basis with Gabe. Um, <laughs> he doesn't know who I am. But um <laughs> but uh but man, I, I just I I love using task paper so much. Um but yeah, I mean I think you know what I what I finally came to terms with is that this the sink and the amount that I'm kind of running around in the office or out out and about in the world, um I just I need uh the stability of OmniFocus. Yep, I'm the same way. Well, that was a good GTD discussion. Yeah. All right. Well, d- well done. Check. <laughs> Check that one off. Um, I will do our second sponsor, and then we'll get to the top three picks. Great. Our second sponsor is one of my favorites. It's Mac Mini Colo, the original Mac Mini hosting company. And basically, you get a Mac Mini, and they put it on an extremely fast internet connection. And you use it as a remote server for anything from, like, I run my websites on it. I run FTP servers on it. I have all kinds of uh, basically remote media stuff set up. I do my backups to it. I, I love my my remote Mac Mini. Uh, they're really easy to set up and maintain. And there's no setup fee. Uh, they have a world-class data center with customers from over 40 different countries that are happily buzzing along on this uh, huge internet bandwidth connection. Uh, great support. They take care of all your hardware stuff for you. Uh, and you know, if you need a hard reset, they'll, they'll rush to the, the room and do it for you. And, uh, you don't have to worry about running out of space because you get up to two terabytes of storage and up to 16 gigabytes of RAM. And if that's not enough, if you need even more power than that, you can also check out macprocolo.net, uh, for colo, colocation of Mac pros. Uh, so just remember that Mac Mini Colo is where low-cost meets high-performance to create the perfect Mac server. Just visit macminicolo.net slash 5x5 and, uh, and learn more. I highly recommend checking it out. All right. So would you like to take the first top three pick? Uh, sure. So um, <clears throat> my first pick is a, uh, is a book. It's by a guy named Raph Koster. Um, and it's called A Theory of Fun. And basically, he is a game designer. Um, I think he uh, designed the original Ultima Online. Um, and I think he's done some work with uh, some of the Star Wars massively multiplayer online so-and-so games. Um, and uh, so basically, it's it's a book about why why gaming is fun, how the human brain works with all of that, and kind of how how play is um, fundamental to, you know, like it was an evolutionary advantage for us as, as we evolved. And, um, and it's so fascinating. Like I don't, I don't do game design, but I, my job involves a lot of trying to understand people. Um, and I think just about anyone who, who works or, or is interested in anything like that would, uh, would really um, enjoy it. All right. Um, I have actually, dedicated entire episodes to trying to figure out what uh what makes something fun well you should check it out it's it's really good it's really smart and it's really um accessible sounds you know, it's good really, yeah yeah all right i linked it that oh and you get the paperback for three dollars and 82 cents right now boom all right well <laughs> my first pick is a new mac act from 
and I apologize to, to if I get this name wrong, but Christian Tietz, T-I-E-T-Z-E, he, uh, he was actually one of the first people to fork notational velocity. And, uh, and uh, I learned a lot from his fork before I made NVLT. So I have a lot of respect for him. And he came out with a new app recently called Mac Word Counter or just Word Counter for Mac. And it basically sits in your menu bar and tracks your word count across all your applications. So if you're working in NVALT and Scrivener and uh, a text editor like Sublime or whatever, you can see how many words you've typed in every one of those applications for the day. And uh, it, it's collecting a lot of stats. Right now, it'll just show you word count, but the next version is supposed to dig deeper into the stats it's been collecting and show you graphs and charts and more analysis of your data and like quantifying if you're a writer quantifying how much you've written is really important to staying on track and that's kind of his philosophy behind it so word counter is uh it's my first pick can you are can you say teats on the air i in context sure okay great <laughs> um Cool. That's see, but that's the thing is it could be Tietza. I've never Right. I've never asked. I I should find out. Right. I'll put a little enunciation note underneath it after I ask him. That, that would be yeah, that would be handy. <laughs> um you don't want to get in any, any weird situations. Um Yeah, that sounds that sounds actually really cool. I may I may go check that out. Um because I think, you know, one of those things that y- you try to have a certain amount of uh word count that you're trying to put together, you know, during the day, or at least make sure you write a certain amount. But you know, what I found is that I'm, I'm bouncing around between apps all the time. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. And I have, uh, I, I'll, I'll divulge this, this, ta- this project I'm working on called written that I mentioned it, uh, it actually every day will run reports and you give it a list of files that are, uh, related to your project and you can use like globbing. So you can say like any markdown file in this folder, and it will go through and do word counts, comparisons across the last day or the last month or whatever you want. And it'll give you readability statistics and show how they're changing over time. Nice. So like your, your gunning fog index and your flesh score and all of these things. Right. Um, and it just outputs markdown reports for you. So you can, you, can, uh, you can update as many different projects as you want in one go. It's going to be pretty cool. I'm pretty excited cool. about it. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds cool. <clears throat> and if and if Brett Terps are doing it is doing it, you know it's quality. Mm, yeah, he's uh he's big on the internet. I don't know if you knew that. Um, <laughs> cool. Okay, so your second pick. My second pick is a uh, it's a journal. It's a, a a paper notebook. It's called the Hobo Hobonichi Teco. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm probably not because I'm a I'm a dumb American. Um, but it's a uh, it's a daily planner that's made um, in Japan, and they've started to create an English version of it. I think last year, um, and uh, so I've heard about it. You know, Sean Korsdorfer, um, who is a an, you know famous internet curmudgeon, um, and Patrick Roan. Uh, I've I've both seen them talking about it, and so I, I picked it up. And and what it is is that there's there's it's it's a small notebook. It's probably about the size of. Um, you could fit it in your jeans pocket if you stuffed it, um, but it's 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 pretty thick. It's got um, a sort of a leatherish cover. Uh, the paper in it is just amazing, um, and I've only recently started to get a little bit into kind of paper and pen and 
in that whole thing. But uh, it's just it's so awesome to write in. Um, there's a there's a there's a page for every day, um, which makes it really useful. I've been using it to to journal a little bit in it. But it's but it's sort of nice when you have because you know when you have a nice notebook and you don't want to write in it or it's sort yes. of like what goes on this page. <laughs> well, because every page has a is assigned to a day. It's like, well, if you don't write on it in it on that day, then that page is just wasted anyway. So it's sort of a nice, um, uh, a, a nice way to 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 write stuff. Um, nice. And you know, you can see people like I, I've been using it f- to journal. But if you go on their website, you can see, um, you know, people like <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the Japanese um, videos. Like they're doing all kinds of weird little Japanese things with it. Um, but you know, there's some people use it as a day planner. Um, but it's just it's this beautiful little book that makes it really fun to write. Awesome, and 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 I do have that problem where I have really nice notebook and it stays blank because it's so pretty that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's worth checking out. I've been trying to get into pen and paper more too. After years of listening to people espouse the benefits of pen and paper, I'm finally now seeing actual reasons why I would issue the keyboard for a little while yeah and it's sort of a bummer because i love <laughs> i love to have like my ipad in a meeting and to take notes into yeah. into notesy and then you know have mv alt ready to go and and stuff like that but then like when i started to sit down with notebooks again and i could just write down a, a random thing like you know have you seen the bullet journal system no. um there's that would have been one of my picks um but uh Basically, it's it's just a way of using a, a notebook. Um, that is, it's 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 interesting. Um, but anyway, so it's it's just makes it so easy to write down any any random thing that you come across um, without creating a text file, which is <laughs> or, or explaining to people like when you're typing on your on your phone, like oh, I'm taking notes right now. I'm not I'm not texting. <laughs> right. All right. My second pick is. Uh, a web app called TM Theme Editor, which is a, a fairly uncreative name for an editor for TM Themes. Uh, TM Themes are the color palettes, uh, the theme that you get in like Sublime Text or in TextMate, where the format originated. And uh, and it basically, you can start with things like Twilight or Monokai, which are my favorites, and you can uh, you can adjust overall things like hue and uh, saturation, brightness, and uh, and affect like all the parts of it, or you can go in and edit the individual scope colors just like you would uh, in say TextMate preferences, and uh, you can come out with a, an entirely custom theme that's based on you know really good starting points with contrast and everything, and get exactly what you want out of it. And uh, I'm blown away by how well done this web app is. Well, that sounds uh, that sounds incredibly incredibly nerdy, but um, it is. But uh, but it, but I could see how that could be that could be really cool. It's another form of tweaking, finding that perfect color scheme for your eyes, so that you can stay up all night coding. Right, right, and and actually making it so you have to stay up all night coding. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, let's see. Should I go? Are we you, on? You should go. All right. So the last one is, um, it's, uh, I believe, I believe this would be called a life hack. Um, so it's, it's called the stand desk 2200. Um, and what it is, it's for people like me probably who work, um, as Dan would call it a, a corporate stooge job, um, who aren't important enough to have their employers, uh, 
foot the bill for a proper standing desk. Um, what this is is a, a standing desk that you can set on top of the desk you already have, and it's made out of about $22 worth of IKEA parts. So, um, you know, that $7 little side table that everyone has, the lax side table, um, two shelf um, brackets, and then a shelf sitting on top of it. Um, and uh, it's actually, I think that the lack table has gone up in price, so it might be more than $22 now. It might be like $25. Um, but anyway, it's, it's, I, I built one here at, um, at my office, and it's been a really great and expensive way to, to try it out and to um, actually use it and, and kind of go back and forth from sitting and standing. That's, uh, that's way cheaper than by about a thousand times than my, my desk cost me. No, not a thousand, a hundred. <laughs> right. No. But, your desk, but, but your desk is scriptable. God, I'm horrible at math. It, it basically is, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm very happy with my next desk. And I'm glad I invested the money in it because the ability to quickly go from sitting to standing with the push of a button yeah. uh, is the only reason that I do it. If well, it, if it yeah. required cranking or moving items, I probably would sit more than I stood. I, uh, I almost <laughs> – I used to – I worked at an agency that did a project with Apple Care, and we went to one of their facilities – and they, the, the Apple Care facilities that Apple actually owns, or the one outside of Sacramento, it had, they all have those hydraulic desks. I don't know if it's the same brand that yours is, but man, I saw that and I almost quit my job and went to work there. <laughs> it's, it's pretty awesome, but I think everyone should have a standing desk. And if you prefer the, uh, the, the uh, more DIY solution, do it, you know, like as long as you get off your chair for half the day or whatever. Yeah. And it's just a really good way. Cause I don't think it's not for everyone. And in fact, since we had our, we had our baby, I've been using it less cause I'm tired. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, uh, but I think it's, it's a really expensive way to, to, you know, definitely try it out. Definitely. I, uh, I, I started out with, um, cardboard boxes and foam, uh, <laughs> like foam, like the blocks that would surround like a monitor when it came in a package. Right. Um, and I built a desk that had the right ergonomics using that stuff to decide whether or not this was something I could do. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, it is. It, it, I think it's it's probably best to start with a DIY solution and decide before you invest a couple grand in, you know, some microprocessor controlled, <laughs> right? Uh, convertible standing desk. Yeah, because right. it it isn't for everybody. You're right. Although I think anyone who sits in a chair for eight hours a day, it is for them. Right. And, uh, you know, the other benefits that I've seen from it, um, not only do I look cooler, um, but it's it's easier. You know, I need to not be at my desk a lot. I need to, to kind of be out and around and, and talking to creative teams and that sort of thing. And so it's it's a little bit harder to get mired down in, sure. you know, in that hunch that's hard to get out of um, yeah. and, and to come and go. And uh, it's funny because as as other people have seen it, They've started to they've started to like build their own or like the the head of our the head of our PR group uh, literally went and and built the same thing. But you know I've started to see him pop up throughout the agency a little bit, which has been which has been cool. Nice. All right. So my last pick is the PowerMate Bluetooth, and it's basically a PowerMate, which you may be familiar with from Griffin, um, but it's Bluetooth no USB cables. It's a sleeker design 
nice click action on it. Uh, and they remade the PowerMate utility, which I haven't decided if I love yet, but uh, but I do love the hardware, and uh, I'm pretty excited about it. I should um, describe it, shouldn't I, for people yeah, who aren't what, familiar? <laughs> so for people like me who have no idea what you're talking about, um, <laughs> what would you say it does? It's a, it's a button. Uh, it's It's a button. It's a silver button with a glowing blue light underneath it, and it sits on your desk, and you can... It, it rotates like a, a shuffle or a shuttle, I mean, um, and you can have that control anything from volume to custom keystrokes. Uh, so you can spin it left and right. You can click it. Uh, you can add a, uh, you can assign a task for a long click or a short click. And then you can also click and scroll left and right, uh, which has a different effect than just scrolling left and right. So you have a, a variety of uh, actions you can assign to it. And it's just about two inches in uh diameter and it i don't know and you can assign you can have different light states like you can have the light underneath it pulse or flash or whatever like <laughs> i had it set up at one point so that my wife could tap her iphone and my power mate would start uh three quick flashes in with like two seconds between them so it'd be like da 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 and that meant she needed me to come upstairs right and then i could just tap it and it would let her know that message received i'm on my way right um De- decline <laughs> <laughs> i didn't i didn't add a decline button yeah um probably, probably smart <laughs> i added a cancel button though <laughs> but that was on her end right she'd right. be like oh never mind i got it mm-hmm. um but anyway that's that's what a bluetooth uh power mate is and basically i'm just talking about a, a, a wireless version of it that just recently uh came out officially very cool very cool all right. Well, I'm going to do one more sponsor read, and then we will tell people where they can find you. Great. All right. So MailChimp.com means easy email newsletters. MailChimp helps you design email newsletters, share them on social networks, integrate with services you already use, and track your results. It's like your own personal publishing platform. So you can customize your newsletter, sign up to match your brand. Uh, you can make just about any part of what your subscribers see, including the sign-up forms and the confirmation emails, all match your brand. Uh, you can share your sign up on your website and Facebook page, and you can collect signups from an iPad or a laptop. And, uh, and if you have an existing email list of, of customers or clients, you can import that no matter what format it is. You can, you can use it with MailChimp. And there's never been a better time to try MailChimp with their entrepreneur plan. If you have under 2,000 subscribers, you can send 12,000 emails every month forever. Just visit MailChimp.com slash 5 by 5 to learn more. All right, so you are uh, Kevin Rothermel, Rothermel. Yep, there you go. I'll, I'll spell that out, uh, K-E-V-I-N-R-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-L, and that is both your Twitter handle and, if you add a .com, it's your website. Yep, that's correct. And I will link both of those in the show notes. Is there anywhere else you want people to visit? Well, I'm going to be uh, starting a podcast um, pretty soon, but if they wanted to visit the blog, that's, that's where they'll find out about um, any of that. All right. And uh, speaking of starting a podcast, I uh, I recently started uh, Overtired with Christina Warren, and it's a very different show from Systematic. It is, uh, it's about media and and a little bit of tech nerd stuff, and basically uh, it's two of two ADD people who stay up all night uh, working on various projects and things that uh, may be of interest. 
or maybe something you can laugh at. Um, but, uh, but it's been a good time. We're on episode four. So check that out on five by five as well at, uh, five by five dot TV slash overtired. And, uh, I want to remind people about the audio drop too. Uh, if you think that you would be a great guest for this show, um, feel free to record a two to five minute introduction, uh, just on your iPhone or if you have a mic, whatever, uh, and then send the audio file to, uh, drop it off at brettterpstra.com slash audio drop. And, uh, and that'll upload to me. You can attach a little message and, uh, that'll let me get to know you. And if, uh, if you're going to be a great guest, I will contact you and we'll schedule a show. So, um, you can find me at brettterpstra.com and TT scoff everywhere. Thanks Kevin for being here. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I hope that was a, a convincing impression of a podcast guest. I think it was spectacular. Wonderful. All right. And uh, we'll see everybody in a week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>